Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 19th of March, 2021. That makes it St. Joseph's Day. So happy St. Joseph's Day. Today, I'm going to further a discussion on glucokinase, something that we've been centering on because it's an interesting regulatory axis for controlling carbon metabolism in multiple cell types that act both as the entry of glucose into the cell because of phosphorylation and therefore trapping it, but also a sensing phenomena. And as we're going to find out today, it's also going to be a gateway to controlling flux of the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines in some populations of immune cells. So uh, let's get going with this. Paper published in 2019, Scientific Reports, I will give you the complete citation in the show notes, tells us the following. There is an ADP-dependent glucokinase, and it was described back in the 90s. And unlike the liver and pancreas, GK, this particular one possesses a low KM for glucose, not a high. But only about 0.09, and that, that KM is about 0.09 millimolar. But like other GKs, it isn't end product inhibited. There's some other things about its connects I'll get to in a moment. So the question is ADP versus ATP, right? So maybe ADP is the phosphoryl group donor, since it seems to function nutrient-deprived and maybe even in certain anoxic conditions. Now, where do we see this in disease cells? In the Barberg cancer cell lines, right? Where you have basically glycolysis occurring in the presence of oxygen with the lack of mitochondrial support for ATP synthesis. So ADPGK, this ADP-dependent glucokinase, its expression is highest in immune cells, and you find that both in the myeloid lineage and the lymphoid lineage. So um, speaking of stimulation, Upon stimulation, immune cells often do show a Varberg glycolysis. We've talked about this many times. And why, or at least the argument is, presumably, to accelerate the production of ATP without any need for intraorganellar transport or the complete electron transport chain to be functioning, right? Which it takes more time and involves more integration of metabolism. So a very active barberglycolysis will allow you to set up, for, if as long as it's functioning rapidly, allow you to set up for uh, moving from one uh, level of a cell cycle to the other ready for division, right? That's why cancer cells tend to thrive on it, okay? Now you also get this barberglycolysis presumably in the immune cells because that will also allow you to do a lot of glycoprotein synthesis and secrete certain classic glycoproteins. So what would they be for immune cells? Cytokines. So an activation of GERCAT cells. Now, GERCATs are uh, cells that express the CD3 antigen, and that means that their receptor is, of course, is a T-cell antigen receptor. And a particular clone called E61 is the most common GERCAT cell line, and it produces large amounts of interleukin-2 after stimulation. So GERCAT cells are kind of like the um, well-described cell lineage that people will buy when they want to study T-cell metabolism 
and at least the ind initial induction period for pro-inflammatory cytokines, which IL-2 functions as. Of course, IL-2 is also a growth stimulant for uh, the entire T-cell lineage, so it allows you to add other cells into culture and look at the transmigration of that uh, receptor-mediated communication from one cell lineage to another. So, and they divide well, and they've been perfectly described genetically. So, uh, if you look at your cat cells or even primary human T cells, um, when you activate them, that leads to a downregulation, again, of mitochondrial respiration that's in concert with the upregulation and even a bit of a deviation of glycolytic flux. And in this case with the T cells, it drives towards glycerol 3 phosphate dehydrogenase shuttle, which is going to be a little bit less efficient and less productive for ATP synthesis, but allows for very rapid movement of reducing power. This is kind of like the um, the flight muscle of insects, for example, and the white uh, muscle of birds that don't keep uh, extended flight, such as turkeys and chickens. And we talked about this in classical biochemistry courses, including the one I teach all the time. Now, anyway, this all this results in the release of a mitochondrial reactive oxygen signal, and it steers towards the expression of NF-kappa B, which is the transcription factor, which is going to allow for the uh, transcription expression and then finally secretion of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Remember, these are uh, immune cells, particularly T cells. So this metabolic shift coincides with increased ADPGK activity that is the ADP-dependent glucokinase, and the expression of the NF-kappa B target genes. Remember, that's transcription factor. And what are they? Well, interleukin-2 and interleukin-8. And so they're strongly dependent on the ADPGK activity. So remember this whole thing about the Warburg versus regular. In differentiated tissues, in the presence of molecular oxygen, glucose goes to pyruvate, and in the presence of oxygen, that pyruvate and molecular oxygen will go all the way to carbon dioxide. And some of the pyruvate will be, uh, will be used for uh, homolactic fermentation, for lactic acid synthesis. In the absence of oxygen, you'll get glucose to pyruvate to lactate. That's basically anaerobic glycolysis. You get two mole of ATP per mole of glucose there. Really inefficient, but that's because molecular oxygen is absent. Again, when you do full oxidative phosphorylation, you get 36 mole ATP per mole glucose. That's the most uh, productive way of oxidizing glucose, of course. Now, let's look at this Warburg. Either with proliferative tissue, which doesn't have to be oncogenic, or with tumors, which of course are, um, plus or minus oxygen, glucose goes to pyruvate, but only about 5% of it will react with the oxygen to make carbon dioxide. That means full TCA cycle. Um, and then all the production of ATP that you might be able to do. Only 5% of that carbon though. 85% of it, as it turns out, goes to lactic acid. So there's still 10% left over there. So you have homolactic synthesis at 85% as if the oxygen was absent, even though it isn't. That is basically aerobic glycolysis Warburg effect. And what you get there is about four mole. ATP, so about double per mole of glucose, so a little bit more, okay? So let's talk about the glycerol phosphate shuttle. Remember, there's a malate aspartate shuttle. We talked a lot about that. It involves transamination between glutamate and oxalacetic acid, 
along with alpha-ketoglutarate aspartate. Remember that? That's moving carbon back and forth across the inner mitochondrial membrane. So we're not going to talk about that this time. Now we're just going to key on another really important inner mitochondrial membrane shuttle called the uh, alpha-glycerophosphate shuttle. Now what happens there is that, remember after the aldolase reaction, um, metabolizing glucose, uh, fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, you make dihydroxyacetone phosphate and you make alpha-glycerol phosphates. You make the alcohol and ketone. Now, you also know that there's an isomerase that will turn DAP, the dihydroxyacetone phosphate, into alpha-glycerol phosphate. Now, when that happens, okay, you can get the reduction of FAD to FADH2 when the glycerol phosphate is used to re is 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 used to synthesize the dihydroxyacetone phosphate. Okay, so the reaction gets reversed. When that happens, you reduce the FAD, right? Because you go from the alcohol to ketones. So you get FAD, FADH2. Now that flavoprotein complex is embedded in the mitochondrial membrane. It picks up the electrons at the oxidation state of ubiquinone. It goes to the UQH2 pathway, ultimately all the way to molecular oxygen. So you get some reducing equivalent coming from the glycerophosphate uh, dehydrogenase shuttle because it's at the level of oxidation um, at, of FADH2 rather than NADH. Um, you only get um, two-thirds of the ATP that you would by the complete oxidation of NADH. Okay, so that is a loss again of total amount of uh, bioenergetics relative to ATP synthesis, but it's a very rapid motion of reducing power because it's hooked right on that membrane protein, that flavor protein. Again, the insect uh, flight muscle and birds like turkeys and chickens, their white muscle, that's how they function for rapid movement, right? So there's also a glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase shuttle, which is, of course, linked to the lactic acid dehydrogenase. So this is all cytosolic. So when glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate goes to, this is glycolytic now, through the G3PDH pathway, the glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase enzyme, that's glycolytic, you make NADH, but you also make 1,3-bisphosphoglyceric acid. Now, you know, that continues down the glycolytic pathway to pyruvic acid. When you get to pyruvate, pyruvate will go through the lactate dehydrogenase reaction, and that will actually make NAD, right? That NAD now is available for the uh, gap dehydrogenase to once again make 1,3-bis-PGA. So that's the glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase, lactate dehydrogenase couple. That's also functioning here in these immune cells. Now, some more information about this ADP uh, glucokinase. A-fold lower catalytic rate for the ADPGK compared to classical hexokinases. That suggests a minor contribution then probably to cellular glucose phosphate levels. Now, since ADP glucokinase is, the e, is in the ER, that's where it's localized. I didn't mention that, but now I am. The obvious idea is that maybe this ER trapped, because it is trapped, glucose 6-phosphate, could be dedicated for what goes on in the ER, which, of course, is glycoprotein synthesis via the old gluc oxygen gluconeac modification pathway or the complex NO glycosylation pathway, right? Both of those, as it turns out, 
particular constellation pathways that those two I just mentioned, they're essential for T cell activation since they support cytokine synthesis and indeed secretion, which amplifies the signal through IL-2. So again, employing JERCAT T lymphocytes and using an enabled CRISPR-Cas9 mutated ADP glucokinase, they did a study uh, of investigating whether or not that glucokinase does support the glycoprotein pathway. They also did a study in a zebrafish model, so not just in cells. Now, remember about cytokines. Any molecule that communicates among cells in the immune system in particular, you call them cytokines if they're secreted glycoproteins, okay? Anything that communicates secreted glycoprotein, we're going to call a cytokine because that's by definition what they are, sensu stricto. Now, the interaction of a cytokine with its receptor on a target cell can cause changes in the expression of adhesion molecules and chemokine receptors on that target membrane. That can then orchestrate movement of those lymphocytes from one location to another. So cytokines can also signal intracellularly. This is where they get most of their literature for. And that affects, of course, signal transduction cascades. And that can lead to enzyme activity modulation and via transcription, working through transcription factors like the NF-kappa B we already mentioned, you can, you can alter gene expression. Case in point, of course, is IL-2, inducing the Treg transcription repertoire that occurs through the transcription factor of FOXP3, which I talked to you about in great detail back in the fall. So cytokines also administer a cell fate programming and reprogramming, right? Autophagy versus programmed cell death. Yes, indeed. Talked about that too. So cytokines are classified as interleukins. Uh, that's a subclass, basically, and that literally means intraleukocyte communication, right? So they're called interleukins. For example, interleukin-1 is secreted by macrophages. Interleukin-2 is secreted by activated T lymphocytes. Because of the, that whole historical nature of the biochemistry that goes on with these cell lineages, cytokines sometimes retain their original designation, and that's what you'll find in the literature. So that's why we talked about things like TNF-alpha or tumor necrosis factor alpha or interferons, which are involved in um, ablating viral invasion in cells. Uh, but those are still called interleukins because that's what they are. Okay. Now, you have chemokines. Now, chemokines I talk about a lot, too. They're a subpopulation of cytokine of that huge superfamily. Remember, these are all glycoproteins. And these chemokines mobilize and recruit immune cells from one organ or, indeed, from one part of an organ to another. So they're involved in cellular recruitment and movement, right? So chemokines belong to the class of molecules called, by definition, chemoattractants. And these are molecules that attract cells by influencing the assembly or the disassembly or the contractility of cytoskeletal proteins within the extracellular matrix or with intracellularly as well. And you also get the expression of cell surface adhesion molecules along with this process with chemokine functioning. So chemokines attract cells with the appropriate receptor for chemokine. And that occurs in regions where the chemokine concentration, of course, is going to be elevated, right? 
So this will all be an induction based on gradients, based on increases and decreases in concentration. Cytokines bind specific receptors as well on the membrane surface of target cells. They trigger signal transduction pathways, of course. They ultimately alter enzyme activity, or I said, or gene expression. The susceptibility of target cell to a particular cytokine is also determined by the presence of its membrane receptor. And generating cytokines and their fully assembled receptors exhibit a very high affinity for one another. They have dissociation contents for cytokines and receptors ranging from nanomolar to micromolar. And because those receptor affinities are so strong, and because cytokines are often secreted in close proximity to the receptors, almost functioning paracrine, uh, the cytokine concentration itself doesn't get diluted, so there's a buffering about the concentration. And so you get a lot of diffusion after secretion, and very few cytokine molecules actually can mediate any kind of powerful, long-range biological effect because of that. However, cytokines are going to regulate the intensity and duration of an immune response. They also act as the growth factors and stimulants, as I've already mentioned for Tregs, for example, or they can even work as inhibitors by changing T cell lineage, for example, so, uh, because changing transcription factors within those cells. Now, cytokines, of course, are glycoproteins. That means it's synthesized through a dolichol pyrophosphate-mediated pathway. Now, where does that go down? Of course, in the endoplasmic reticulum, right? So just to remind you that dolichol phosphate, okay, um, is a prenal, it's a prenal lipid. So part of this whole integration of the regulation of cytokine metabolism intimately has to do with its gly the glycosylation pathway, which is linked directly to lipogenesis, particularly prenal lipids. So a very quick review here with prenolipids. Of course, you start with acetyl-CoA, making hydroxymethylglutarol-CoA. You go through the reductase, making mevalonic acid. You add pyrophosphate to that. Then you make isopentanyl pyrophosphate, dimethyl allyl pyrophosphate. And you can that directly can be used for transfer RNA activation because then you make the isopentanyl adenosine tRNA, which is, which is essential for protein translation. However, both the IPP and the dimethyl pyrophosphate, or the DMAPP, can combine, making geraniol pyrophosphate, onward to farnesyl pyrophosphate, C10C15. And then the farnesyl pyrophosphate can do multiple things. It can go through the squalene pathway to make cholesterol. It can go through the cisprenal transferase pathway to make dolichol. Dolichol is going to support glycoprotein synthesis. You can also get direct protein prenylation. These are usually farnesylated or geranyl-geranylated proteins. Talked about those. If you go through the transprenal transferase pathway, you make the geranyl-geranyl pyrophosphate, which can be used to synthesize ubiquinone, which is an electron carrier, of course, in the electron transport chain, among other things. And, of course, you can do those geranyl-geranylated proteins I've already mentioned, right? So that's a real quick rundown uh, of a very complex pathway, right? Now, when you want to run a glycoprotein synthesis in the ER, you have a hydrophobic signal peptide that emerges from the exit of a free ribosome on the cytosol during protein translation. 
So you have something called a signal recognition particle, or SRP. It recognizes and binds that peptide, and peptide elongation gets temporarily halted in the cytoplasm. The ribosome then moves to the ER membrane, where is a docking protein to this SRP, which will bind to it. And then finally, the ribosome is transferred to a ribosome receptor or a translocon, and you get protein biosynthesis resumed now in the ER. Okay, you get a newly synthesized protein that becomes extruded through the membrane, in uh, through the inner through the ER membrane into the ER lumen. So this is how you get that protein moving from outside, initially being synthesized uh, by polyribosomes in the cytoplasm. Now it's flipping through that membrane, so just because of the docking of the SRP. And now you're in the lumen of the ER where you can finish the processing of these glycoproteins. One one class of which are going to be, of course, cytokines. So synthesis is actually initiated in the cytoplasmic base of the ER membrane by the transfer of the N-acetylglucosamine phosphate to directly a delicol receptor, a delicol membrane between the lipid. That's followed by the formation of first a glycosidic bond uh, upon transfer of a second residue of N-acetylglucosamine. Then you add five residues of mannose. This is canonical glycoprotein synthesis. Five residues of mannose are added sequentially from a GDP mannose carrier. Then the lipid linked oligosaccharide is reoriented to the lumen of the membrane. This is what's going on at the intramolecular level, intramembranal level. And then you get additional mannose, and then glucose residues are transferred from delicol linked intermediates. The delicol sugars are generated, of course, from cytosol nucleoside diphosphate sugars. This is a nucleotide pathway. The completed oligosaccharide is finally transferred as a oligosaccharide or glycan tree to the protein and the process of being synthesized at that membrane surface uh, within the lumen of the ER. And then that signal peptide um, at this point is, is usually already cleaved. Okay. So you can make alpha-1,2, alpha-1,6. Alpha 1, 2, alpha 1, 3, alpha 1, 2, alpha 1, 2. These are the high mannose common core regions, and those link up to asparagine after then making alpha 1, 6s, beta 1, 4s, uh, usually two sets of beta 1, 4 linkages. Then finally, hook that entire glycan to asparagine. You also have the complex type, which will start off with an alpha 2, 3, beta 1, 4, or an alpha 2, 6, beta 1, 4 linkage then moving usually through a beta-1-2, then an alpha-1-6 or alpha-1-3, then a beta-1-4, another beta-1-4. This is all adding N-acetylglucosamine after adding mannose and sialic acid. Sialic acid is those alpha-2-3s I talked about and alpha-2-6s. There's also galactose added uh, after that initial phase two. So you've got sialic acid, which is basically N-acetylneuraminic acid, N-acetylglucosamine, Mannose and galactose. These are the sugars we're talking about for glycoprotein synthesis, all of which can be manufactured directly from glucose, right? Because these are amino sugars and, and they are different uh, isomers of those hexose sugars, right? Uh, epimers or isomers or anomers, depending on which ones you're talking about. Let me check my time here real quickly. Yeah, we're doing fine. All right, so. Cytokines of the interleukin-1 family are typically secreted very early in the immune response, often by dendritic cells, which of course are part of the innate immune system, but also their APCs, their angiopresenting cell, 
but you also get IL-1 from monocytes and macrophages, including microglia. Interleukin-1 secretions, of course, is stimulated by a recognition of either a viral, a parasitic, or even a bacterial antigen, and by the innate immune receptors. You have the interleukin-1 family members are generally pro-inflammatory, meaning that they will induce an increase downstream in the capillary uh, and through permeation through that capillary system at that direct site of cytokine secretion, along with the full amplification and level of leukocyte migration that's going to go down in that infected tissue because of that interleukin-1 being synthesized, all kicked off by the dendritic cells, right? which are usually carrying an antigen too. So the study, again, that was done was to pinpoint the role of the ADP glucokinase. They're saying maybe this ADP GK regulates the induction of the Warburg phenotype in the activated T cells because the failure of T cells to reprogram their metabolism towards an anabolic phenotype usually leads to T cell dysfunction and cell death, right? So indeed, an increased activation induced cell death, uh, which is known as AICD, was associated with a weaker activation of caspase-3, which makes sense about the apoptotic fac uh, factors, but increased degradation of PARP, which of course is involved in DNA repair, all that suggests an activation of an additional cell death mode, be probably because of an induction of mutations, because PARP is being degraded. Since cell death is blocked by a pan-caspase inhibitor that they use called ZVAD, the second hit is dependent on the induction of a classical activation-induced cell death pathway, which has been well worked out in T cells. Analysis of different metabolic pathways suggests that a failure to metabolically adapt to the increased bioenergetic and I would even say anaplerotic needs upon active act activation, anaplerotic using, running through TCA, is the amplifier for this entire activation-induced cell death when you have a knockout in the ADPGK. Okay, so ADPGK deficiency gives you the following, a disturbance in energy metabolism. So let's quickly go through what that disturbance looks like, and then uh, might be able to still finish this. Maybe, I don't know. I've got three minutes left. Let's go ahead. So an ADPGK deficiency will disturb energy metabolism. How? It'll reduce glucose uptake. Here's your glucose sensing phenomena. It'll diminish activities of the hexokinase the phosphofructokinase, and the respiratory chain complexes, all because really of levels of glucose. It'll also cause a disruption because of an activation-induced depletion of thymidine metabolism intermediates, which is, of course, the, the linkage to uh, deoxyribonucleotides. And finally, an enhanced activation of autophagy first, in addition to impaired energy metabolism, because these knockout cells display an aberrant glucnacylation and an N-glycosylation pathway. So the O-oxygen and the N-glycosylation pathways are both in, disrupted when you get ADP glucokinase deficiency or a knockout, okay? So O-glucnacylation or glucnacylation would be the correct way of saying that. And also the nitrogen atom-linked glycosylation are both corrupted when you lose that glucokinase. So it looks like that glucokinase then is involved in the glycosylation pathway. And that's why it's essential, okay, 
um, in, in this system. So I can tell you that there's a reduction of caspase 3 cleavage in the knockout cells, and that results in ER stress, and that induces a signaling pathway through NF-kappa B. When you make that transcription factor, you get autophagy. They're commonly seen as a pro-survival mechanism because you're autophagic rather than apoptotic. But they can context-dependently support even a full-blown apoptosis, depending on what else is going on, particularly reactive oxygen. So the interplay, interplay between those two, that axis of autophagy versus apoptosis, isn't well worked out in mammals. It's been studied well in Drosophila and yeast, of course. But there's an increasing evidence that the autophagy can enhance uh, apoptotic signaling, especially when you get ADP glucokinase depletion. So even NF-kappa B can promote apoptosis under certain cancer therapies, and, a, and which is unusual. And a recent study actually shows that ER stress-induced autophagy and apoptosis are indeed dependent on NF-kappa B. So that's all really important. So I'm going to stop here because I want to finish off the glucokinase um, more, more floridly. But just understand from this point, the, the ADP glucokinase acts as a sensor in the ER and it functions in the glycosylation pathway of pro-inflammatory cytokines and the initial activation of T lymphocytes eventually becoming the entire uh, plenum of T helper cells and also bleeding off into natural killer cells and uh, regulatory, T regulatory cells. So I'm going to stop here. Dr. Dan Guerra, come to you, Thunic Biochemistry Studios on the 19th of March, 2021, St. Joseph's Day, saying bye for now.